0: Hello everyone, it's October 11th, 2022. It's Test Fest 3 this week. All the new stuff on the test stand that's being fired up. Also to get us fired up is Alex Doknas and Bjarki Weeks with Orcasat, a small satellite that could do big things for telescopes on the ground. So let's fire up the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 380 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So Dennis, did you want to talk about DART? Sure. And uh... In the tele-created...
1: Yeah, just saw some uh, tweets, uh, and it sounds pretty cool, and I bet we'll get more information when the team starts releasing details. But evidently, they're talking about a debris tail being at least 10,000 kilometers long, and so they're <laughs> discussing it as though it's essentially a comet. And so wouldn't that be something, and part of the reason why we need to do a DART mission, because it's like, oh, well, we're going to slam... A spacecraft into here to go and uh, save Earth or whatever and you just create a giant comet that comes and destroys us anyway so <laughs> yeah that's
0: a pretty cool magic trick you turned an asteroid into a comet
1: I know right it's uh geoengineering I guess <laughs>
0: So let's do Test Fest 3. So we've had two, and to be honest, I would have lost count. I know that we did one, and I guess you have to have two, otherwise you wouldn't have named it. So this is number three. So (laughs) I guess this is four different tests. And the first one is the Arian 6 Vinci engine, which is cool because it's been... I mean, I feel like I've, I've been looking at that or we've been talking about it for a long yeah. time and at least we're finally into the testing phase. And so that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not as cool as their new concept for a, well. Oh, well, Sophie. What was that? Yes. Yeah. yeah, Sophie. But yeah, the Vinci engine. So this is a Hydrolox expander cycle engine and it has this carbon ceramic extendable nozzle. So that's pretty cool. So I don't know. I mean, we're just kind of going down what, you know, tests were done. Now, Dennis, do you know if they tested this nozzle as far as, you know, like actually extending it?
1: Not that I know of. I didn't see that reported. I kind of grabbed that from uh, another source just to point out because upper stage extendable nozzles are just really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, the test footage is actually a little challenging to see because yeah. the um the structure that it's housed in is obscuring a lot of the engine and the firing but
0: and there wasn't much of a cue of when it started to go because usually you hear a very loud roar and it's just kind of quiet and mm. i guess they put they didn't get the raw audio they just kind of i mean i, d- I don't know what the noise is but it's clearly or not or the up close the microphone
2: least. was in the building next yeah. door
0: <laughs> and so this was tested at the P5.2 facility, which is at the DLR facility, which is in Lampoldshausen, Germany. Yeah. So this is a new, I believe a new test facility um, that they have in Germany. And apparently this, this place recreates and this is from uh the ESA article it actually recreates the conditions of flight from french Guiana specifically but it does not recreate microgravity or a vacuum environment so uh, that got that kind of got us thinking again well then what is it recreating because i think yeah. we asked this question a couple of weeks ago about a different test right and we were mm-hmm. kind of wondering exactly how do you reproduce the conditions of flight and exactly what conditions are reproduced and yeah, uh, yeah. i'm still stymied so
1: same here i think i forget that was somebody's engines at stennis, was it was it rocket at stennis lab? yeah i think rocket lab is going to be testing their engines there yeah no that'll be good to know but in the meantime before we uh <laughs> book somebody on who's an expert to tell us everything uh if you have some familiarity with that please shoot us an email because we're dying to know or at least i'm dying to know
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know my my guess is that it's operating conditions under a rocket so like Talking about like the amount of fuel flow available, or something like something really disappointing. Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, and 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 probably like whatever commands are done at what times, or you know something yeah, like uh, that. follows like yeah.
1: well, the yeah, kind of it, operations of flight. Yeah, conditions. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Conditions. I think environment.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah for, we're
1: yeah. all we're all thinking. Sorry.
2: Yeah.
0: But um, one other thing this test does is that it also tests uh, the new APUs. Uh, the auxiliary power units and they these are different in and I don't know how they normally would work but I guess on the Ariane 5 upper stage they used helium uh in order to maintain the tank pressure and the temperature uh, but this is going to use it says like some pretty small amounts of locks and lh2 and i don't know if it actually combusts them or if they're just used to pressurize those respective tanks it wasn't clear about that because to me an apu does other things like i thought that maybe it you know produced some amount of power right isn't that what it what it yeah yeah does? the
1: idea was it, it would it would burn hydrazine and uh I think it was Hydrazine and NTO or maybe one of the if if not Hydrazine uh, you know, uh, uh one of the variants of it, MMH or UDMH, mm-hmm. I forget which for the shuttle. But yeah, I think you burned that and NTO to basically, yeah, drive them, and then they would be able to power all of the uh like the the aerodynamic surfaces, the moving parts mm-hmm. for the shuttle. Uh and so that's why they were very important and wanted it to be super reliable, if I remember correctly. Like why they did that instead of a battery or something, I guess.
2: This sounds like it's almost like autogenous pressurization like you've got an APU like pressurizing the tanks and heating them or cooling them or whatever i don't know that's oh yeah i guess cooling because you don't want bubbles so
0: it did state explicitly that it was uh, in order to prevent yeah. that from happening on restarts um, but that's m- you just mostly because you're in a zero g environment. But, um, yeah. but also I don't think you can autogenously pressurize these types of tanks like that, right? Like, can you do that, like, with a launch two tank? Yeah. but it,
2: it does say it delivers these conditions using only small amounts of the cryogenic hydrogen and oxygen already carried in the main tanks. So I'm wondering if it, if it's like burning them and it's almost like a blowback gas generator, like, like I wonder if it's doing gas generation and then dumping it back into the tanks or something. I don't know. It, mm-hmm. That's really interesting.
1: Obviously, this, these APUs, yeah, they're used for a different purpose than shuttle APUs, but yeah, okay. So we're all converging that it burns a little bit of the hydrogen and oxygen to basically just exhaust that into the tank.
2: It also might not be. It might not be exhausting it back into the tank. It might just be using it as to generate electricity that is then used. But yeah, I mean, that seems mm. it's something in that category, right? Like. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. One way or another, you need to generate the necessary
1: pressure and temperature to ensure there's no bubbles yeah. in the fuel lines. So. <laughs> well, cool. I I feel like that's that's a PDF waiting for one of us to find, right? Yeah. Um
0: <laughs> It probably is just a PDF away. Really, we probably should have searched.
2: I'm looking for it. I'll let you know. <laughs>
0: So, I guess we can move right along uh, to the next test, uh, which was the Aerojet Rocketdyne solid motor, which is uh, the ESR-19. Uh, And this was a design verification test, and it was carried out by AFRL at Edwards. And this is an upgrade to the SR-19 motor. So, this is, you know, a solid motor that was used, uh, or at least the SR-19 version was used on the Minuteman 2. And this is an upgraded version. I don't know much about yeah. it. I don't know, you know, a whole lot about solid motors. But um, mm-hmm. I think, Dennis, you have here noticed that it follows up on uh, the ESR 73, right? So is that a previous motor
1: Yeah. So apparently, to the ESR 19? So it sounds like the ESR 73 was a, uh, a demonstration motor specifically that they fired last year to kind of see what was good before developing, or I guess finishing and tweaking and then ultimately firing this ESR 19. So, even though the 19 has a much lower number, <laughs> apparently uh, that is closer to the finished product. But the fact that it's got an E sitting in front of it as well makes me think it's also an experimental. Or is it, you think it may be uh, extended or expanded or Maybe, you know, yeah. SR-19. Because I think,
0: yeah, because I would think that experimental usually begins with an X traditionally. That's a
1: fair point, yeah. Yeah, and it does preserve that SR-19 there. Okay, so yeah, so I guess whatever, yeah, uh, there might be an SR-73 floating around somewhere else, and so... But in any event, that's that's what that ESR-73 was. It was a a demo, basically, before they did this Mm -hmm. one. but, But, you know, I agree with you as far as not really keeping track of all the different solids floating around, and then especially on the show, right, we don't really talk too much about ballistic or about missiles (laughs) as much you know we'll we'll bring them up sometimes in the context of other spaceflight things but as far as like what's the latest and greatest uh engines and motors being developed we're always talking about you know large launch vehicles that are you know other than i guess the uh sls uh srbs and then maybe the the solids that are on um like the gems we'll talk about those and we'll talk about isros new ones and that's kind of it and then maybe the solids and uh, Chinese some of the Chinese long marches, but Pri-
2: primarily yep. solid rockets that are not designed to kill people. Pretty much, yeah. Or have been reclaimed from their killing past.
1: Yeah, they do I sometimes
2: be- kill people. Well, like like, that's not the point. Oof.
1: Not intentional. That's true. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
1: and also real quick, too, to kind of go back to, uh, just <laughs> before we leave it, uh, the Ariane 6. So, Ben, you and I both did our Googling and found <laughs> some Ariane group <laughs> uh, uh, documents. And indeed, uh, the one that I found, <laughs> they both say complimentary things. The one that I found uh, does, in fact, verify that it injects it back into the tanks. But and also, that it's a gas generator. And that it's a gas generator. So, use for thrust. So,
0: would that mean that it's... That it's just reinjecting what, like water vapor?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, ideally, I maybe. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. It seems weird to put water vapor in there. It also says that it, it heats up the gases and then reinjects them. So it might be burning some of it to produce heat, heating up mm-hmm. the liquid gas and dumping it back in. But it also works as like, a, you know, a garage air compressor because they can use it to deploy satellites. Um, it's not a hundred percent clear. Um, but it says it provides thrust for satellites. Like how cool, (laughs) like, yeah, just puff these things out with some, with some pressurized uh, fuel. Don't even have to burn it. Okay. And then moving on to
0: the. Third in the test fest, uh, the BE-4 full-duration firing. So, we have a full-duration firing of a BE-4 engine. (laughs) That's about as much as we know because, you know, Mm. that's... Yeah, so this is for the Vulcan rocket. Um, And uh, just a reminder, this is a methalox oxygen-rich stage combustion engine. Very complex engine, big engine. Mm. Uh, There's not much to say, but Tori Bruno was kind enough to tweet a video of the full duration test. This lasts about like three and a half to four minutes, something like that. Hmm. And it looks good. Couldn't find much else about the test.
1: I mean, it's beautiful. If you haven't already seen the the firing, there's like all this dust that's getting entrained in the plume. And so you just see this really wild looking pattern when they have the bird's eye view of the firing. And so if you this is about a week and a half old, but if you haven't seen it, a uh, strong recommend. Mm-hmm. video is, I don't think I've ever seen a uh, static firing that's this cool looking. <laughs>
0: yeah, they got some good drone footage of it. Mm-hmm. So, I guess this was a completely successful test. So, this puts them on the path to hopefully uh, get their certification by March of next year for uh, launching, I guess, just general payloads, not, uh, you know, the DOD and the NRO payloads, which will be for 2025. Apparently, that's when they're hoping for a certification uh, for that, which is something that, you know, like SpaceX already has and, you know, they've just been kind of behind as a result of the BE4 and Engine integration into Vulcan, but mm. um, so they have a couple more years before they can start launching government payloads. But at least you know this is a good sign, mm-hmm. so things are moving ahead. I, and I kind of wonder how frustrated Tory Bruto must be. You know, like I like I always think of him as kind of like I don't know, like texting Jeff Bezos, like you know, like hey man, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know how it actually works.
1: Yeah, I could imagine things being awkward at some point.
0: Yeah. And then anyway, so let's move on to the fourth thing in this, which is the most exciting of them all. And I have to admit, I have not, I cannot remember ever having heard of this company, uh, Stokespace. This is, I kind of read up a little bit about them before we started recording. Very interesting company a fairly new company only i think like a couple years old they were founded by former SpaceX and Blue Origin employees this is a company uh that is aiming to kind of do what i guess starship does but for the smaller like the regular commercial satellite market so kind of like a smaller version of starship but not really a starship concept so by mm. that i just mean a you know a fully reusable first and second stage mm. uh they have a really innovative idea for how to do it, um, something that I don't know if I'd ever even thought of because, you know, it's kind of fun to think about these things like how do you get a second stage back from orbit mm-hmm. um, at least in a way that's you know, rapid and reusable and, you know, like reliable, cheap, and you can still get some payload up. And who knows if this is going to actually work, but um, we'll talk about the concept in a second. But anyway, yeah, that's what this company does. Um, very, very cool. They're actually shooting for an orbital launch in 2025, which seems pretty soon, really. I mean, considering that I just heard about them, I, I guess. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I realized uh, the reason why I think I had heard of them, but like everything went in one ear and out the other, and I never really... They never made uh, much of an impression until the this firing footage started appearing. And it's because, like, in the news, it seems like they just keep popping up as they raised however many millions of dollars in this round of venture capital. And and they raised more money. So they've raised a lot of money for this concept. And so they looks like they could fly, potentially.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a lot of what I read, was that they did spend several years just raising money. So mm-hmm. there was... Um, one funding round that was kind of spearheaded by Bill Gates, I think. Um, I mean, they've, they've just been trying to, like, you not know, no get kidding. the money to get this off the ground. Yeah, the key technology here is actually a kind of an aerospike. I guess it is an aerospike, um, <laughs> but not the kind, or not for the reasons that you would think. And this is kind of the innovative thing because, like, when I watched the test, because they do have video of this test as well, I, I was kind of like, "What is this going to do?" But then I figured out, you know, like I kept on reading about the company, and I figured out what the plan is, and it's pretty interesting. So this might be. The best use of an aerospike yet. I don't know if you'd mm-hmm. agree, but considering how impractical they usually are, this might actually be practical. And it's, uh, it's basically to act as a heat shield for the second stage. So you're kind of creating a little boundary. Um, just below the second stage, which at least in the concepts that I've seen is kind of shaped like a capsule, sort of, kind of like a biconic mm-hmm. kind of capsule shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea is, you know, you have to usually have all these heavy heat tiles on your capsule or some kind of a heat shield. And I don't know if that would be... Well, I don't know. I suppose... This is better in some way because uh, this is, you know, the path that they have chosen. Um, Probably because it would require more heat tiles and more weight. And, you know, heat tiles are also pretty delicate. So they're going to use an aerospike to kind of create like a little shock boundary there Mm. right in front of uh, the vehicle as it comes back. Crazy idea. I don't know how you feel about it, but... I'm excited to see where this goes.
1: Yeah, I love that this is basically trying to fill a different part of parameter space of kind of how could you use different engines yeah, in different right, yeah. uh, stages of flight <laughs> to try to, like, you know, push things to the next level. And so I think that's really cool. I will say that uh, uh, I, I do love uh, – we'll, we'll talk about this as an aerospike, the possibly the best use of an aerospike for a larger vehicle kind of at the time because, of course, you can't leave out cowbell. And its suborbital aerospike with all mm-hmm. those wonderful flights that it has done, and so <laughs> sorry, I just love cowbell. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I think it's cool as hell, and just a totally different approach to, you know, using this super efficient a- engine, but not so much to make it single stage to orbit, but rather to recover that second stage in a clever way.
2: So first off, what I really like is that we're seeing a space company who's talking a big game about reusability starting with their second stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That has not been done, to my knowledge. And, you know, start with the hard stuff, I guess. I don't know. Like, it it makes a lot of sense to start with the easy things and just prove that you can get into space. But given that arrow spikes have been so, uh, let's say challenging instead of cursed. It, it's, it's good to see that being worked out, but yeah, so they've got this weird, um, version of an aerospike spike because there are so many different versions. Um, I believe it's going to be a truncated plug. Um, but inside the, the center of the, the wheel, uh, the, the annulus, Is one, uh, pump that feeds all of the combustion chambers. And then there are, uh, it's not an annular combustion chamber, which would be, uh, cool in a dramatic way. Um, but it's a bunch of, uh, little combustion chambers, um, spread around the ring. Do you guys have a guess how many, how many engines that is? Is it like nine or ten, maybe? Uh, I know somebody had tweeted however many it is. It might be. It looks like 16. But, yeah, it's it's cool to see so much plumbing in the center. It's a little scary, but, you know, it, it can be done. Which gets me wondering then, I mean, like, why an aerospike? Because it, it's the only engine that works as a heat shield. It's actively cooled. So, like, any other engine bell will get get too hot, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it, okay. every other engine that has come back through the atmosphere or is planned to come back through the atmosphere, it's, it's protected. From it's protected from shock heating by some other component, and in this case, you don't need some other component. You just have this giant, actively cooled plug that I guess is good enough.
1: That's going to be a big plug.
2: (laughs) I know, right? And like, I'm assuming it's a truncated plug, given that this thing is like three and a half diameters or three and a half meters in diameter. It looks like. I guess
0: that's the thing is that I'm not imagining quite how big that plug is, and. That does make a big difference.
2: And who who knows? Like it's it's gotta be truncated, but it could be, you know, reasonably short here. Um in
1: their like they want it to be. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. In their drawings, it's it's it looks almost like a normal heat shield, but I think that was uh to hide the the development they're doing. So I mean, yeah, it just it's a weird it's a weird dual use that could result in a form factor that we're not expecting. I don't know. It'll be really Mm -hmm. cool. Hate the name, you're not uh, don't you know, I like
1: about Stoke, not, you know, you don't like Stoke. <laughs> yeah, base?
2: yeah, no, no. I mean, I like I, I'm really glad that it's the logo is a flame and not uh n- not like a like a bro. Like a surfer bro,
0: but uh, <laughs> or oh, you just think of the word stoke is
2: something yeah like you need to be
1: stoked. Tubular aerospace,
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, sto- I'm stoked on space, man.
1: Oh, and I guess Delta Delta V asked a question. I don't know if you saw that in the chat about the Falcon 9 being partially shielded by the reentry burn. Would that count? Um, no, it's
2: suborbital. <laughs> Next. <laughs>
1: Okay,
0: so let's do three short and sweet this week. Dennis, what's the first?
1: Ireland's first satellite readies for launch. The Educational Irish Research Satellite-1, or AirSat-1, has been designed and built by students and academic staff from University College Dublin. This 2U CubeSat will be launched to a 520-kilometer orbit and will include a detector to measure gamma ray bursts as well as tests of thermal coatings and an attitude control software. All three experiments have been built and developed in Ireland. AirSat-1 is planned to launch from French Guiana next year, with a window extending between mid-January to mid-February.
2: Right next, Crew-5 launches the station. The Crew-4, of commanded by Nicole Mann, and consisting of two NASA astronauts, a JAXA astronaut, and a Roscosmos cosmonaut, successfully launched in Dragon Endurance on a Falcon 9 last week. After a 29-hour, 17-orbit rendezvous, the crew docked the Harmony module at the ISS, resulting in 11 people total on station. While Crew 5 plans to remain on orbit until March 2023, Crew 4 will be returning to orbit shortly after Crew 5's arrival, ending a roughly six-month stay on orbit.
0: And then lastly engineers regain control of capstone normal attitude control has been restored for the lunar bound spacecraft capstone which has been in a spin stabilized state since going into safe mode after a trajectory correction maneuver a month ago engineers were able to isolate the problem a partially open valve resulting in thrust whenever the propulsion system was pressurized and capstone is now back to three axis attitude control advanced space which owns and operates the spacecraft says that further procedures will take the partially open valve into account as the vehicle continues its journey to its near rectilinear halo orbit or nrho or nero <laughs> thank you as dennis calls it
1: yeah isn't that kind of wild that they got to just anytime they pressurize like okay I cancel out this thrust it's always going to be leaking out of this part this thruster
0: yeah like a leak on the spacecraft is not just a leak it's also propulsion so mm. <laughs> unwanted thrust in addition to all the other problems it creates
2: All right, today we have two people with us. Uh, Alex Doknas, the project manager of the UVic Orcasat team, and Bjarki Weeks, the undergrad technical lead of the same. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Welcome to the show. Good. Thanks for having us.
3: I'm pretty good. Thanks again for having us.
2: Yeah. So so I, I want to like get real deep and granular into your vehicle because it's really got me excited. But first, let, let's just get a quick, like, overview uh for people who don't know what orcasat is
4: so orcasat is a is a 2u satellite so it's the size of a a carton of milk like a two liter carton of milk or a shoebox. that's kind of the size that we give people um you know reference for scale so it's pretty small um it's funded by the canadian space agency which is pretty exciting so they gave us funding for the project as well as they uh, sponsored the launch opportunity for us um, so we were just tasked for building the satellite. And um, what we're trying to do with Orcasat is demonstrate a, well, two things. The first is to give students uh, a hands-on experience with developing a satellite and working on a real space mission. Um, there's lots of CubeSat projects at, across, you know, universities uh, all over the world. But the main issue with a lot of them is they can't secure um, a launch opportunity. And so the tone is completely different when you're working on something that you know kind of doesn't have a chance of ever going to space versus having like a hard deadline of like you have to hand the satellite over and it's going to space. Mm. And if you don't have something, you're not going to space, period. And so that shifts the tone completely, right? And and it makes it much more exciting. It also makes it a lot more stressful <laughs> and it makes it a lot more work. But that's kind of the – that was the goal for the Canadian Space Agency was to, was to get a, a pool of students from – uh, British Columbia. So Uvic is the is the lead, but we've also got student volunteers from University of British Columbia as well as Simon Fraser University. And so the CSA's goal was to basically have a pool of students coming out of these universities that have um, hands-on experience working on a, on a real space mission. And I guess hands- on is I literally mean hands on the satellite. Like people touch the satellite, people assemble the satellite. On the mainland, they don't touch the satellite because they're physically separated from the satellite. But they put their hands on the firmware and that kind of thing. So it's not a lot of um, it's not a lot of like sitting around while one person does work. Like everyone contributed pretty significantly to the project, which is exciting. Um, and so I think we've, we we kind of met the CSA's goal with that. So to date, we've had uh, 25 um, students that have worked full time with us for mm-hmm. more than eight months. So there's a huge amount of like training hours that have been put into this project and those students have all gone to go work in industry, uh, particularly Canadian space industry, which is pretty exciting. So Mm. um, I think we made that goal. But as far as what the actual satellite does, it's a scientific uh, demonstration and it's basically a light source, a really fancy, uh, expensive calibrated light source. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to demonstrate a better method of calibrating ground-based telescopes, so when you're a ground-based telescope and you're looking up at the night sky and you're observing stars, you basically are trying to measure the brightness of the star. And there's a bunch of science behind, you know, why you want to know the actual brightness of a star. One good example of that is uh, universal expansion rate. So the universe is expanding, things are getting further away from us. And not only is it expanding, getting further away from us, it's accelerating as it does so. And one of the measurements that you're that you're trying to take when you're doing this sort of like analysis of how fast are things moving away from us is the brightness of objects, because as objects move away, they, for the most part, stars emit a constant amount of light. But as they move further away, you see less and less of that light. And that's how you can make the measurements of how things are moving away. So you want to you want to know the absolute brightness of things for those types of measurements. But the problem is, is you're making all those observations through Earth's atmosphere. And Earth's atmosphere um, is constantly changing. We've got really good atmospheric models that predict How much of that light is going to be attenuated and and dispersed to the atmosphere? But there's still a good portion on the order of like one to 10% that we can't really model. And there just isn't, it's just an uncertainty basically on all measurements. So if you're looking at a star and say one day it reads a certain value and the next day it reads a different value, you don't necessarily know if that's because the star has moved away from you or if it's just the atmosphere is particularly thick or particularly thin that day, Um, or there's aerosol concentrations that have kind of moving around. And so the idea with Orcasat is that it's it's a light source and it's above the atmosphere and you can look at it and observe it and you can make measurements of it. But the difference between Orcasat is that not only do you know how bright it appears to the telescope, you can talk to Orcasat and you can pull data off Orcasat and Orcasat will let you know exactly how bright it actually is. And so that's kind of the difference between looking at Orcasat and a star is that you can't talk to a star and figure out how bright it actually is but Orcasat will tell you. And so you can use that measurement to basically calibrate out the atmospheric effects and get uh, hopefully an order of magnitude higher accuracy on measurements of stellar objects.
0: So does Orcasat take measurements of light sources from space as well and that's how it communicates the difference or that's how you can gauge the difference?
4: No. So or- Orcasat's just a light source itself. So it, it emits light. Um, it appears okay, as Okay, I like, see. Yeah, okay. So yeah.
0: basically it says this is how much I'm emitting and then you get what you receive and then you can do the math there and figure out how much of the light source you're actually getting
4: pretty much yeah
0: you can account for all those atmospheric effects okay i see what you're saying
4: yeah it's very um my high level overview is obviously high level and it's very simplified there's a whole bunch of crazy math that goes into actually figuring out how bright it should appear Uh, it's not as simple as just getting the measurements because viewing angle will change it Mm -hmm. and its position over the telescope will change it and if it's rotating or spinning or tumbling or anything like that it'll change it so there's it's quite complex but that's just like the simplified kind of easy version to understand
1: it sounds like essentially you're making a standardized artificial star
4: yes so you, yeah that's what we like to n- call it pretty much
1: don't leave it to nature with how wonky stars can be just <laughs> have it under control and but yeah I love
4: it. Yeah, you
0: need a star you can talk to.
4: Exactly. <laughs> it's not very bright, though. The, I think the most disappointing thing about Orcasat is when people ask me, like, can you see it with your naked eye? And the answer is no. It's it's too dim to see with your naked eye. You'll need about like an 8-inch telescope to actually see it. And that's mostly just because like, it's a small satellite. It, it's hard to make it that bright. Yeah, and honestly, we're not trying to calibrate for your naked eye. We're trying <laughs> to calibrate to the big observatories <laughs> of giant telescopes. So it doesn't need to be super bright, Got but...
1: I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I know so it looks like it's uh, it's red light. And so, do you know what magnitude that corresponds to off the top of your head?
4: It should be about a magnitude twelve star. Okay. Well, a little little bigger, like twelve and a half, thirteen, or something like that. But it's designed to be magnitude twelve.
2: How large is the aperture, just to give people like a, a baseline?
4: It's pretty small. It's like uh, a centimeter.
2: Okay. So so you've got a, a milk carton with a, a centimeter wide dot on the side of it yeah um so i want to roll us back just for a second here i want to talk about uh how you two got to where you are one of the questions that we get a lot from listeners is like uh how do i get into this you know into space how do i get into a particular field in space um how do i know if i can do that like if personally that's something that i can do so i would love to hear um uh what degrees uh you guys have or are working on um and like what kind of things you wish you would have known uh before making some of those big academic decisions That's a tough one. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sure.
4: (laughs) Well, we'll start. I guess I'll start. So I started my undergrad degree in 2014 at UVic. had to think about that for a little while. (laughs) And I went into electrical engineering and kind of the whole reason why I got into engineering and uh, specifically electrical engineering is not super clear. Um, When I was in high school, kind of everyone told me to go into engineering because I liked to take things apart. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay. (laughs) And I was got like pretty good mass, mass grade. So I was like, sure, that sounds fine. So I went into university and kind of my first year, I had really no idea what I was doing. And there's multiple times where I thought about dropping out and switching to something. I was seriously considering just getting like my, uh, my chef, like going to sh- like cooking school and becoming a chef.
2: Definitely I, like,
4: easier. Looked up. Yeah. <laughs> looked up how to enroll it and everything like that. And then there was just a couple courses that I had that had r- really passionate like caring professors that got me excited about it. And so that's why I kind of stuck around. But yeah, not really good reason or not really good answer for you as to like why I kind of went to university.
2: Uh, Biarki, could you could you tell us a little bit about how you got where
4: you
3: are? Yeah. So uh, I'm still in my undergrad, um, working away at my undergrad in electrical engineering while uh, leading the undergrad club on our next solid project while helping the Orcasat team uh, finish off the ground station for... Marcusat. I grew up in a small town uh, here in, in uh, British Columbia um, with a fantastic view of the stars, and so I've always kind of been in into astronomy, into science, into like uh, spacecraft, uh, and that kind of pushed me to wanting to go into engineering. Um, so, but after school, I took a couple of years off, and then when I came back and got back involved uh, in academia. I've just tried to join up with various different aerospace teams, jo- uh, work on what we're doing. During my first year, I did uh, composite manufact- uh, composite manufacturing experimentation for the rocketry team here at UVic, um, and then um, moved on to help out like, a little bit of early, uh, just getting some hardware up and running for Orcasat, um, and then kind of disappeared over COVID, uh, because classes were really heavy online and that sort of thing. But uh, after that kind of all calmed down, I've come back, and uh, now I'm uh, building up the undergrad team for our next big mission.
2: Okay, so uh, Orcasat stands for the Optical Reference Calibration Satellite, and it's fun that you got Uh, the CA of Orca from calibration when I'm sure it was tempting to get it from Canada, Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, I, I read it and I went, Oh, CA. Okay. All right, cool. (laughs) Um, Where is Orcasat right now?
4: Uh, Right now it's in the States. So it's in Houston, Texas. Uh, It's in NASA's hands. And at some point it'll get put onto a rocket. So we don't have it it's
2: gone (laughs) and uh so so you're flying uh on a dragon in uh in a nanoracks payload is that right
4: yeah so we're we're on uh crew resupply uh 26 mission which i think is scheduled to go up to the space station on november 18th is the last
2: i heard right now Um,
4: obviously dates move around a little bit Mm. but um that's the last date i heard so if if it's moved since i've checked then there we go um But yeah, once it goes up to the space station, um, it doesn't stay up there for too long. Uh, it takes them about a week to to prepare the payload um, and the NanoRacks deployer uh, to be put outside the space station. And then, um, yeah, about a week after it goes up, it'll actually uh, eject Orcasat. And, uh, and then soon after that, we'll be attempting to talk to it for the first time, which will be extremely nerve-wracking.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: Are you going out the NanoRacks uh, airlock or are you going out the... The Japanese. Yeah,
4: we'll be going out. Yeah, Bishop, their their own airlock there.
2: That's really cool. We're we're fans of uh of the dome that plugs into the end of the space station.
4: Yes, (laughs) it's pretty cool, and we get photos and videos of it coming out too from the from the astronauts. Oh right, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's very cool, and I think we get a live stream too.
2: (laughs) Oh, cool! That's awesome. Okay, um, so. I want to talk about the the design of your vehicle. And here in my notes, I have in all caps the words laser sphere. Uh, because your integrating sphere is like, I think it's a, a concept that I've seen before, but it's not one that I'm familiar enough to be able to recognize without somebody telling me what it is. So could could you describe what the integrating sphere is and what it does and why it's important?
4: The concept's a little weird. It's it's one of those things where we've got this really good demo piece that I don't I don't have on hand to like show you on a webcam or something, but we have this really good demo piece where as soon as you see the demo, you just like your brain just clicks and you're like, oh, that's how it works. But trying to explain to someone without that demo is kinda kind of tricky. But basically what it is, is it's a it's a hollowed out sphere and the inside is coated with a diffuse reflective material. So diffuse reflective means if you shine light on it, it reflects the light, but it it disperses the light. So it's not like a mirror where if you shine a laser beam on a mirror, you get a dot bouncing right back at you it'll it'll spread it out and it'll just like how like if you put like a diffuser like a like a white sheet over a light or something like that it kind of diffuses the light out that's what it does so if you shine a laser beam on this diffuse reflective material it doesn't just shine a dot right back at you it'll kind of spread the light out and so it's a it's a sphere where the entire inside is coated with that so if you take a laser beam which is like a point source and you shine into the sphere, it disperses the light out and it makes it so that you're not just looking at a laser beam anymore. And you're basically looking at this like red dot of light coming out of the aperture. And so a a laser beam, if you're to point that at at an observatory, you'd you'd have to have some pretty crazy pointing accuracy to actually like get it to shine into the telescope optics. Mm -hmm. But with an integrating sphere, you're basically diffusing it out. And it looks more like just kind of this like point source with a viewing angle is like 60 degrees so you you have this kind of cone of light coming out of the the integrating sphere but the secondary reason why you have an integrating sphere and it's kind of almost the more important reason is if you've got a laser it's kind of hard to measure like how much power that laser is emitting without doing some sort of like beam splitting Um, because if you put like an optical sensor in front of the laser now all the laser light is going into the optical sensor it's not going into the telescope optics so the integrating sphere allows you to basically make um, multiple apertures um, that you can put photodiodes in and everywhere in that sphere um, has the same amount of power of light. So as long as your aperture is the same size, you've got the same amount of light coming out and you can make uh, measurements of how much light the sphere is actually emitting without uh, affecting how much light the sphere is actually emitting.
2: Is there really no hot spot inside the sphere?
4: Uh, there is on the one wall uh, immediate, to where the light comes in. So the, the first kind of like bounce that it makes is a hot spot that we try and avoid. But as soon as it makes that one bounce, it gets dispersed out and it's basically uniform throughout the whole sphere.
2: That's very cool. And, and you have two different light sources or just one?
4: There's two different light sources. There's a 660 nanometer red uh, laser and there's a 840 nanometer uh, near infrared laser on there.
2: And why were those wavelengths selected?
4: From my understanding, and I'm not the science expert Mm -hmm. behind the payload, (laughs) but from my understanding, those are two of the kind of dominant wavelengths of interest when observing um, stellar objects. So 660 and 840 were kind of like the sweet spot for for doing the calibration. Obviously, you'd want to have more wavelengths of light, but just due to the size of the satellite, we, we had to just kind of narrow it down to one or two. Luckily, we were able to fit two in. And so those were like the kind of the number one and number two choices for for the wavelengths.
2: Um. And so and so that thing takes up like one of the U's basically, right? Like it's half the satellite almost.
4: Yeah, it's a little bit less than half. It's yeah, but it's basically half.
2: Yeah. Was it sized to be as big as as it could be for the for this configuration?
4: Yeah. um, More or less. More or less. The engineering design process is definitely not linear. Like there is many. circular iterative approaches to it but kind of from day one that was roughly the sizes that we had in mind as we knew basically we were limited by the satellite bus like we knew how much room we would most likely need for the electronics based off of like previous projects and looking at like off-the-shelf buses that you could buy and just looking how much how much payload volume they had so we knew that we would need approximately about a u just for the electronics So, so we were kind of from day one planning for a u for the payload but payload design went through probably about a dozen iterations before it finally settled on like kind of the final design that we ended up flying with so to say that like we knew what it would look like or kind of like the exact size it kind of was give and take back and forth but generally speaking yeah we knew roughly half the satellite would be payload roughly half would be electronics
2: and then and then on the outside of the of the spacecraft you have uh pv panels on five out of six faces, right? Like that that's a lot of, of solar panels that aren't going to be facing the sun.
4: Yes, they, yeah. So yeah, uh, I might try and refrain from ranting on this one a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the ISS orbit is possibly one of the worst orbits you could, you could put a satellite into. And I, I talked to a few people about why they put the ISS into that orbit. And basically it's just easy for rockets to get to um when you're launching from, from Cape Canaveral. Um, that's like Cape Cape Canaveral
2: reason. and from Russia. It's gotta be yes, it's gotta yeah. be high and low latitudes. Yeah.
4: Besides that though, for like basically any sort of science mission, ISS orbit is is not super great. And that's mostly because you've got 60 minute sunlit period, 30 minute eclipse, which is common for all low Earth orbits. But the thing with ISS orbit is that 52 degree inclination, like the orbital plane moves by like a degree per day. So you you have extreme uh beta angles. So I don't know if you're familiar with the term beta angle, but it's basically just the angle that the sun is instant to the orbital plane. And that shifts between 75 degrees and negative 75 degrees. So over the course of like a year in orbit, basically the sun vector on the satellite body hits all faces. So you can't just deploy into like one face. Um, because you will have several orbits where the sun vector does not illuminate that face based off of the beta angle or not, or not illuminate that face very much. So it's, it's a very tricky orbit to, to try and plan for when you're doing power budgeting stuff. You don't really care too much about trying to maximize the power that you're generating. All you really care about is just what's the minimum power that you're generating. And so that's why it's got solar panels on all faces because there is orbits where the sun vector never really illuminates like the top face and there's orbits where the sun vector never really illuminates the side faces and so you kind of need panels all over the faces.
0: So like if you could pick it, like any orbit, the best orbit for what your goals are, what would that orbit look like? Cuz I was thinking like deploying from the ISS wouldn't be ideal. So like what actually would be the ideal orbit?
4: Yeah, I think for OrcaSat like you do need you do need a good a good eclipse period because the payload is designed to to turn on during the eclipse. Um so something like a polar orbit would probably be pretty ideal because then you get a little bit more consistent beta angle and it doesn't change too much Mm. um over the course of a year. But it's tough. Another thing too is like the uh orbital period change or not the orbital period, but the sun lit period um changes in ISS orbit quite a bit. So on average it's sixty thirty, but then the Earth has a tilt to it. So as Earth comes around and the orbital plane comes around you have periods where there's there's no eclipse period on ISS orbit the sun never sets and you can see that from like videos on the space station of the sun never really going below the horizon it kind of just dips kisses the horizon then comes back up that's another reason why deploying orc set to the ISS is probably a bad idea is because if you did want to operate the payload every single orbit you just couldn't for some orbits because there is no eclipse period so yeah I would say probably a polar orbit I haven't really thought too much about it to be honest because you know, we You're were kind of in the orbit. So <laughs> yeah, we're not going there. So, but I would say probably, yeah, polar.
2: So your, uh, your PV cells you bought from Azure space. Um, and I, I know that they're an expensive component to, to purchase. Are, are they an interesting component, like mechanically speaking?
4: Solar cells, like PV, uh, photovoltaic. I just prefer solar cells because easier to say than, than photovoltaic, but, uh, s- solar cells are are weird little things. I'll tell you that much. They're probably the most expensive like component on the satellite. Uh, and by probably, I mean, most definitely if you're just looking <laughs> at like kind of single singular components. So if you look at the solar panel, you'll see like the big ones have like two solar, the big ones have four solar cells and the small ones have two solar cells and each solar cell costs about $250 Canadian. Mm. So that's kind of like, how much money they cost and they're crazy thin they're like 80 microns thin so yeah they're like crazy fragile if you like look at them in the wrong way they'll they'll crack
2: (laughs) i love how all the outer panels um on the pcb stencil they all say like handle with gloves and like don't break me like it's like every single open space is filled with warning text
4: yeah because those things are expensive man like we spent about $10,000 just on the solar cells and i i would have liked to order more so we we could have more spares but we just didn't have the funding to order more so yeah it's it's a lot of money just in solar cells but unfortunately you kind of need them but they're they're tough to work with i like on the top you've got like the actual like uh photo like active area and then on the bottom the entire bottom side is the plus like the plus pole of the of the cell and so you have to like electrically connect the underside of the cell but that's also how like it mounts to stuff so you have to use electrically conductive epoxy and kind of like epoxy it down Mm. onto a pad on the solar panel and that part's not super fun because if you've got like a big air gap there um the edge of the cell will like lift up and then as you're cleaning it you you might catch it on like a a cloth or something Mm. and then just rip the cell And so that's, that's super tricky. The way we did it for Orcasat is probably not the best way of doing it. There's, there's, we got some ideas on how to make it better, but yeah, they're just, they're just not fun. And, and, um, Like every time you're, you're touching one of them, you're like, this is $250. And if I break this, like, you know, it just goes in the trash and we grab another one that costs $250 and it doesn't get any cheaper if you keep breaking it. So,
2: and and you, you made two satellites. Uh, So like you had to do, I mean, like at least you had practice, I guess, but like you, you had to do all of this twice.
4: Yeah. It does help. Like the number one thing with like handling expensive stuff is don't think about how expensive
2: it is. (laughs) So what what's the temperature tolerance? Like, I guess you couldn't have soldered it to the board as like a, a surface mount component.
4: We we definitely thought about doing it that way. Um, the main issue why we didn't, well, the main reason why we didn't even try to do it that way is because we don't have a, a reflow oven big enough to fit like the big panels in. Oh, We've got shit. a pretty small little reflow oven and we didn't want to use just a hot air gun and and because the hot air gun is really tricky to actually control like the the temperature on the board. Yeah. Um it's uneven. So, yeah, we didn't we didn't want to we didn't want to do it with the hot air gun and we didn't have an oven big enough. So that's kind of why we just didn't do it that way. Yeah, we went with we the epoxy route. You probably could just like reflow it to the back of the board and you'd have to play around with it though. I don't really know. They are the cells themselves are pretty sensitive to temperature like when you're soldering them, but it's mostly Just like the point source and like the thermal Mm. kind of shock of like touching a soldering iron to like the tabs or something because it's glass. Yeah, like you don't want to take a soldering iron and just like stick it on the back of the solar panel. You'll probably like kind of burn out like the cell or Mm. crack the glass or something. Mm. I actually don't really know what would happen, but
2: that's probably um, if you're putting
4: in an oven. And yeah, (laughs) yeah, we did lots of experiments, but that's not one experiment that 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 we ended up doing. But the epoxy seemed to work pretty good, so we just stuck with that. But you probably could reflow it. You'd have to play around with it a bit though and, and figure out kind of what works and what doesn't.
2: Did you epoxy the entire surface of the cell? Um, cause like there, there are photos that show like a, a capton like mask almost over the, the pad in the middle.
4: Yeah. Trial and error. We, we, we tried to epoxy the whole backside of the cell at the start. And what ended up happening was, um, it was really hard to get enough epoxy applied to the point where Mm. when you put the cell on the epoxy and you kind of press the cell into the epoxy you didn't get seepage and the issue with seepage is like as you can see in some of the photos like the there's these little metal tabs on the top side of the cell and those are like the negative terminal for the cell and so if you've got epoxy which is conductive and it's on the bottom side of the cell which is plus and it seeps out underneath the cell and shorts to the contacts then you just shorted your solar cell out. So we had issues with epoxy seepage and it's really hard to actually like figure out how much epoxy you need so that when you press on the cell, it evenly distributes over the whole back of the cell without seeping out. And so we ended up just scaling it way back and just making this very small little dot because that's really all you need and it gives you enough surface area to get a good connection to the back of the cell and and uh, reduce the, uh, the, the electrical resistance of the epoxy. Give you good like you know good high connectivity connection there. Um but trying to make it more bigger uh didn't really help the electrical yeah. connectivity and it made it just tricky for dealing with epoxy seepage.
2: But that's a that's a good balance to to describe. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And then the Captain Ice uh Captain Isolator we added um pretty last minute. <laughs> <laughs> um we weren't planning on adding that. And then we kind of had this moment where we realized that we've got signals running underneath the solar cell and from day one or very early on the project uh, industry advisor told us like you never you never assume that the solder mask on a circuit board mm. is like an electrical isolator so if you're putting any sort of thing on top of a circuit board you have to have some sort of isolator there and we we knew about that and then we just kind of ignored it because we didn't want to deal with it <laughs> and then <laughs> we got these solar panels in and the solder mask that we had over like the vias and whatnot like didn't fully cover them and so there was like actual exposed copper Mm -hmm. underneath some of these solar panels that were like ground and so if you just put a solar panel on it and just like pressed on it would like short and so we realized that our industry advisor was right and uh we'd have to deal with that so we pretty rapidly turned around this kind of like captain isolator that we could slip underneath the uh the solar cell during the uh the assembly procedure and that kind of isolates it so yeah Mm. great example of uh learning a
2: lesson i guess yeah uh so there's some good questions in the chat first uh deskins asks uh, these cells sound very user unfriendly is this the way that things just are in the small sat space is the small form factor so dominant that sizes everything and the unpleasantness just has to be tolerated
4: yes to basically everything except <laughs> for the fact that this is just how solar cells are period not just for small sats so if you if you look at the big satellites um, they use the exact same cells as these mm. it's just the way they are i don't i i'm i assume it's got something to do with how they're manufactured and like they could make them better but for the most part like well okay here's the thing with solar cells like weight is everything so the reason why they're designed the way they are is because I don't want to add any extra weight to them. So when you design these giant solar arrays for like big geostationary satellites, where like the cost of launching it is basically dependent on just the weight. If each solar cell weighs a gram and you've got a thousand solar cells on your satellite, like now you're starting to get into quantifiable cost increases to the launch just for the solar cells. So they are designed to be as lightweight and minimalistic as possible. Um, But they're the same solar cells like these Azure Space (laughs) sells these same solar cells to big satellite companies and as well as we bought some. So it's the same cell. It's just kind of what we're stuck with.
2: Um, Leon asks, would an 8000 G launch be an issue for these cells? (laughs)
0: In case you want to launch on spin launch.
2: Right.
4: (laughs) Uh, probably, uh, I have no you uh, have to, test, is, man. <laughs> to <hang
2: up.
3: laughs> test it, test it, test it, test it, test right.
2: it. Right. I guess they don't have a lot of mass out at the edges, but still like, um, and then Colin, uh, labels this as a weird question, but I think it's a fantastic question. Is there a kind of potato chip or cracker that is similarly fragile that you could compare it to?
4: Yeah. Like it, it's on the realm of like, like a Lay's, like classic potato chip, like super thin. And if you just like bend it a little too much, it cracks. Like you can't really bend it at all. These ones you can bend a little bit more than a Lay's potato chip, but similar kind of thing happens. If you, you know, you just like put on a table and if you hit it with your finger, potato chip cracks. You put a solar cell on the table, you hit it with your finger, it'll crack. So,
2: yeah, this is not a screen protector for a phone.
4: Absolutely not. Yeah.
2: So then we uh, we got a pretty weird-looking battery pack. It looks like it's a four-cell battery pack. And the, the batteries, at first glance, look like, uh, I don't know, 21700s or 18650s. But they actually have, like, they're, they're shaped like capacitors. They actually have two leads coming out of one end. Uh, can you tell us about your your
4: batteries? Sure. I just wanted to start off by saying, like, I'm the one who designed basically all the electrical oh, like power okay. stuff on the satellite so solar panels and batteries so i love the questions you're asking because <laughs> most people don't care about solar panels or batteries well they're wrong and they're one of the most important parts of the
3: entire operation right
4: <laughs> people love to talk about like adcs and like attitude control and like the radio and, and i'm just like man like can we talk about the battery for once <laughs> but hey here we are so yeah the batteries kind of a long story but with the batteries um, that we flew with Orcasat is kind of a good example. I like to think of it as like the engineering design process at work. And um, the reason why they look different is because they're not your standard like lithium ion, like LiCoO 2 chemistries or um, uh, NMC chemistry. So they're not your standard like lithium ion battery they use in like electric cars or like power drills or or cell phones or anything like that they're called lto which is lithium titanate oxide cells and the advantage of using them is that they're basically worse than your regular lithium ion in in almost every category that you could measure cells against one each other except for the fact that um LTO cells, uh, lithium titanate oxide. you can charge them and discharge them at very low temperatures without uh, permanently degrading the cell. And the reason why you want to do that is because when you have a small satellite like Orcasat, the power budget is extremely tight. There just isn't a lot of surface area on the outside of the satellite to put solar cells. And as I was kind of briefly mentioning earlier with the Orbit, even if you've got like a deployable solar panel array – it only deploys into one face. And so you still have faces that don't generate a lot of power in certain orbits. And so unless you had some sort of weird deployable configuration where you're deploying solar panels on multiple faces to get more surface area, generate more power, with a small satellite in ISS orbit, you're always going to have these really low minimum power generation periods. And those periods also are like, the reason why you're generating less power is because you're spending more time in the eclipse. And if you're spending more time in the eclipse, it means your satellite gets colder and you run off your battery more. And so you kind of get these weird situations where like the worst of the worst situation happens, like your cold case where the satellite is the coldest is the satellite is, is, is the period where you have the least amount of power to do anything about it, which is also the period that you're relying on your battery the most. And so what a lot of designs typically use is they wrap batteries with like heating elements to keep them warm, but then you just suck the battery power. Like the battery is basically just heating itself to stay alive, to then run the satellite. And it doesn't make any sense and it's very inefficient. And so we went down this whole process of like, can we get away from using battery heaters? Can we just find a battery that you can charge and discharge at very cold temperatures? And um, after like two years of research and buying different cells and putting them in our, Uh, freezer we bought from best buy and running tests over weekends uh, we found lto cells that worked really well and so we decided to fly with them and that's kind of the story behind them and that's just the case they come in from the manufacturer that we use is they come in this like capacitor like case and actually makes it way easier for like, yeah, for real assembling battery packs.
2: Yeah. They're, they're bad mm-hmm. for replaceable batteries, but excellent for everything else. Uh, how many, how many different like brands or models did you wind up testing?
4: I should really publish a paper <laughs> about <laughs> this because it's, it's probably got some good helpful data in it, but um, yeah, we ended up testing. Let me just think here. So we ended up testing two different LTO cells um, we ended up testing just your run of the mill, um, Panasonic 18650 lithium ion for like control. Basically, um, we tested a custom lipo battery that was advertised to be like cold, uh, compatible, I guess, or cold, uh, temperature, like resilient. We tested an NMC cell. We tested, a um, a lithium ion phosphate cell. And I think that's it.
2: Okay, so you're mostly looking at different different chemistries rather than different different versions of this. Yeah. Part. Okay. That's yeah. That's a that's a pretty hefty <laughs> test regimen.
4: It is, and testing batteries is slow, man. Like it's not like because you can't charge and discharge them that fast when you're trying to like you know quantify capacity. So you're, yeah. you're typically charging and discharging them at like twenty percent of the capacity. So if it's like a like a one amp hour cell, you're charging and discharging it at like two hundred milliamps. Yeah. And um. It just takes a long time. It takes like five hours to charge, right? Five hours to discharge kind of thing. I didn't even think
2: about that, yeah.
4: And you can't just have one data point either. You got to have a bunch of data points to see like what's going on with the cell. So it it took a, that's why I said like two years. And over the course of two years, we were constantly just like, testing different chemistries and whatnot so yeah, it was quite the process
2: yeah hmm. that's that's crazy it's it's cool that you wound up picking uh you know a quote-unquote interesting battery you know cause it didn't have to happen that way
0: so just out of curiosity what temperatures are you testing them at or what temperatures are you expecting to see in that orbit because i'm actually not sure
4: yeah that one's tough because it's it's hard to do like good accurate thermal simulations um in, in my opinion and we definitely tried doing thermal simulations um And it kind of depends on, yeah, There's you can change some seemingly minor things in the simulation. You can get quite different results depending on what you change. So I don't have the most amount of confidence in our thermal simulations, but from kind of trial and error, looking at other CubeSat projects and looking at like real world data from other satellites that we could find from like papers and stuff, it seems like the cold case in ISS orbit for something the size of like a 2 or a 3U cubesats around minus 25 degrees and so we just bought like a freezer from best buy um like just like a chest freezer from best buy and that we recorded to be at minus like 22 degrees so it was close enough that we could use that for our tests and it's a lot easier and, and cheaper to get one of those than it is to get like a proper like environmental chamber that you can control the temperature uh, accurately on or god
2: forbid vacuum thermal
4: <laughs> yeah hard hard pass on that <laughs> yeah
2: Okay. Um, One of the things that I saw in a blog post that uh, is one of the things that is guaranteed to get me interested is uh, somewhere there was a mention of 300 lines of code, uh, sorry, 30,000 lines of code. And like, that's, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable number for a satellite. Um, But I was wondering if you could talk about um, your software. I know that's, that's kind of the other group's gig. But like, could you at least talk about like the the basic control techniques that are being used, or the uh, you know, if you've got a a, a LAN or you know it, boards communicating with each other, like are, are you using serial? Uh, do you have sure. more than one controller in the in the vehicle?
4: Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll start with that, I guess. So there's the main computer. My um, main computer, I just mean like the satellite computer, the thing that determines um, the command commanded data handling system. So the main computer, primary computer, the thing that takes commands from the ground and actually like does things with the commands. Um, basically every subsystem has a computer in it to like run the subsystem, but the main computer, the onboard computer as we call it, or the command data handling system is a primary computer. And, and it's, as I mentioned, it's, it's role is to like take commands from the ground and, and schedule them to run at certain times. and, uh, interface with other subsystems and basically take a i guess relatively high level command from the ground and then actually like break it down into like more subsystem specific like individual commands based off of things so you can do things like send a command from the ground that says like pull telemetry from the power system and give it to me and then the onboard computer actually like sends a bunch of smaller commands to the power system to pull the telemetry off of it and then it puts it into a file structure and packetizes it and everything and then downlinks it for you. Um, and so that's, that's the main computer. Um, as far as like interfaces go, it depends on what subsystem we're talking to. Um, most of it's just kind of your like lower level, like board to board communication interfaces. So we use uh UART, like a serial interface for the radio. Uh, we use SPI um, for the power system and the payload. And then we use I2C for the ADCS system. And so it's kind of different interface. Interface selection uh, often is kind of out of our hands for a lot of things. And it kind of depends on what you're talking to. And so in the case of the ADCS, like we didn't have a choice. It, it basically had to be I2C. And so that's why we, we went with it. And for things like the power system, we could choose between like I2C and SPI. And we like SPI better than I2C. So that's why we chose it. But like you don't have the most amount of freedom. Like it's it's hard to do things like, um, like when you're just interfacing microcontrollers to one another. Um, it's often the easiest to just... Do whatever they have built in instead of adding like extra circuitry to put in like a like an Ethernet link or like a CAN CAN bus or something like that. So most microcontrollers have I2C SPI peripherals built into them, so it's really easy to use them. So that's kind of why we did it that way.
2: Well, and you, I guess then you got lucky picking a microcontroller that had onboard UART. Because that's not super common.
4: Yep. yeah. the The main microcontroller that runs the onboard computer is a is a Texas Instruments uh, Hercules chip. So it's designed for like automotive and safety critical applications. So it's a pretty beefy microcontroller. The reason why we chose it is because it's got it's a dual core chip. It's dual uh, ARM Cortex something or other. It's an ARM Cortex core. I forget the exact core, but it's it's got two of them and they're in lockstep. And um, that's kind of cool because it's more like robust to radiation effects some from like single event radiation effects if you have a single event radiation effect on one core i guess actually i should talk about what locks up is basically you can think of it as two computers running parallel so every computation or every process that the computer runs it runs in parallel on two cores, and then at the end, it compares the results. And if the results are the same, then it knows the computation was successful, and it can use that result. And if the results are different, it means that there is an error or a single event upset or something that happened. And it basically just repeats the computation until it gets uh, until it gets a, a result that matches on from both from both cores. So it's it's good for radiation effects and whatnot, but. It's a pretty big chip, and it's got lots of peripherals on it, and so yeah, UART was one of them, and so yeah, I guess we got lucky.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, especially if you prefer UART. Yeah, that that's a that's a cool processor. You know, when you're talking about processors that you want to be able to rely on in space, you kind of are limited a bit, but it's still it's still a cool one.
4: Yeah, there's there's two there's there's kind of yeah there's kind of two different routes like. I don't know if you want to go get into the conversation of talking about like radiation effects and whatnot, but it's it's very expensive to get like radiation hardened stuff. And most of the time you can't even buy it unless you're a company like Maxar or MDA or one of these big space companies. Like companies like Texas Instruments do sell radiation hardened microcontrollers, but you can't just buy them from like Digikey or like Mouser. like And, you know, they cost thousands of dollars for like one part. And so for doing a CubeSat project, it's it's just not like realistic to think about getting radiation tolerant stuff. And so you kind of start to get getting creative and think about, OK, well, what actually matters here? Like we're not trying to build a, you know, like a GPS satellite that's going to go into into geostationary orbit for like 20 years. Like we're building a CubeSat that's going to last like six months to a year. And, uh, and that's it. So, you know, the scope changes a little bit and you can start looking at more kind of commercial off the shelf parts, like things like these safety critical microcontrollers where it's not just an Arduino type microcontroller. Like it does have some extra stuff to it that will help it be more radiation tolerant, but you're not going like full send to the other extreme of spending like 10 grand on a single part and it's radiation tolerant and it's shielded and everything like that. So kind of trying to find that balance of, Hey, we can spend a little bit more money, and get something that's quite a bit more better. But we don't have to spend a lot more money to get something that's just a little bit more better. So that's kind of like a good engineering trade analysis there.
2: Um, Chubby in the chat has got an excellent question. Um, Because this is only two processors, um, you can't implement a majority vote kind of resiliency. So when you have um, a a disagreement between the two cores, uh, how often is it unambiguous which side failed and which side has reliable data it's a very math question at this point
4: yeah i don't know like the actual answer to that question all i know is that like it just redoes the calculation. So it doesn't ultimately matter which side is oh, right okay. and which side is wrong. And because we're dealing with like very simple like computations, like this is not, you don't have two completely independent computers like interfacing to one another. Like it's just you've got two cores of the same microprocessor side by side. They're actually, fun fact, they're actually 45 degrees uh, perpendicular to one another because you might have some radiation effects where like it, if a what's the word i'm looking for for a, a, a radiation guy if a radiation guy <laughs> comes through the chip and you've got two cores in parallel side by side there is a chance that it can it can affect both cores in the same way yes yeah, and symmetrically. so then that's bad yeah. but if they're physically 45 degrees or 90 degrees rotated from one another then there's a that chance basically goes to zero there's there's really no configuration where you could have a little radiation guy beam through and, and affect both cores in the same manner. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. you don't really care about who's right and who's wrong. Like you're not, you don't need the data from that one computation. Yeah. you are
2: fast enough that you can redo it. Exactly.
4: Yeah. It's a little bit different if you had like fully separate computers where they're running computationally intense yeah. computations and you didn't necessarily want to have to redo that every time.
2: Do you happen to know if it does that correction on board or? Yeah, it's all on like the hardware.
4: So if like the two cores are, are separate give different results it just does it
2: does that have any timing issues like i guess you're not you're not doing anything in real time so i guess it probably doesn't matter
4: that's the good question i don't have a good answer for it's, you it's a one.
2: tough question i know if you if that's not your your thing and uh chubby says it's particle thank you chubby particle there we go just, yeah. just for our bread. <laughs> hey it's sunday morning i'm not going to remember everything here right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh this is all satellite talk, which is awesome, but y'all are also building a ground station, Um and that's extremely different from building... Uh, a satellite in some ways and very, very similar in others. Could you uh, could you talk about that process and could you tell us what your ground station looks like?
3: Uh, I could probably talk to at least the current state of the ground station because I've been helping out a lot on that as of late.
4: Before you go, BRK, I just want to answer the question of what's what's the same and what's hard, because I think I got a good answer for that. And then I'll let you give an update of what the ground station actually looks like. What's easy and what's similar, is the fact that the radio on the satellite is the exact same radio that's on the ground station. It's Mm -hmm. just slightly different firmware, which is kind of cool. So it's the same radio on both sides. That's the same. The thing that's hard is that like, when you're building a satellite, like, you've kind of got complete control over it. When you're dealing with a ground station, like, it's going on a roof. It's going on a tower that we don't own. The university Mm -hmm. owns it. And so now we have all these other stakeholders that we have to deal with. We have to deal with facilities management. We have to deal with the lab managers. We have to deal with the Department of Electrical Engineering, who like has that building and and has that space. And so it becomes way more complicated. And there's all of a sudden a whole bunch of people who are very concerned about safety related issues. Um, Things like uh, we're putting an antenna on top of a tower. So now you've got to get, uh, you know, certification from Transport Canada that like it's not a certain height so that a plane won't fly into it. Like, you know, it seems obvious to us that like a plane's not going to fly into it, but like you still have to have that paperwork and then all sorts of like frequency licensing things similar to the satellite itself, but they're a little bit more different because it's on the ground. So you have to make sure like, you know, the ground station isn't so powerful that it like burns somebody from the radiation that it's emitting. So (laughs) those are the kinds of things where it's like, um, it's a fun project because it's a ground station. You can get your hands on it and build it and you can use a ground station to talk to other satellites, not just our satellite, but lots of other like, amateur radio satellites. And um, But it's also super like the opposite end of engineering where it's a ton of paperwork, a ton of like making people happy, a ton of just meeting with people and shaking hands and trying to get on the same page and seeing what's possible. And yeah, so those are kind of the two, what's very similar and what's different about it. And I'll let Bjarki give a better overview of what we're actually doing.
3: On that note, uh, I've been working uh, up in the radio laboratory lately, um, working on the ground station. Uh, The original uh, antenna setup that was up there uh, hadn't been used for quite a while, so we've been doing a lot of infrastructure upgrades, uh, such as running new lines, uh, getting the tower recertified because we're putting a new antenna on it. Um, I think the antenna is... I forget the exact length, but I think it's about 15 feet long. Um, I could be getting that wrong. I'm just trying to find an uh, exact measurement on that. Um, but it's a uh, highly directional Yagi antenna. Uh, both, It's got two antennas on it, one for UHF bands and one for VHF bands. Um, So we've been uh, upgrading that with a rotor system so that we can accurately point it at where our satellite is. Um, And we've been building up the infrastructure so that we can actually run the antenna, uh, like on the back end, uh, like power systems and uh, cabling. And uh, in addition to some other systems that we have backup ways to Access the server, uh, if needed. Could you talk more about the the pointing
2: mechanism that you have?
3: Yeah, so it's uh, so the pointing mechanism is a large uh, ro- uh, rotor mount, um, which it's it's very very uh, it's quite a, ch- a chunky thing, and it connects to a motor controller inside. Um, it's so it's got. Uh, rotational and then vertical axes on it. And then from there we can uh feed in from the ground station our uh our prediction as to where the satellite is um based on our orbital prediction software and then we can basically once we have this the uh system set up we can tell we want to at like this azimuth and pointing in like this direction and then it will just kinda of do that. So I mean it's it's really like a like a telescope mount almost,
2: like in, in terms of capacity.
4: Yeah, it's almost exactly as like a star tracker for taking like astrophotos. That's
3: cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, except it's going to be mounted about 50 meters in the air when it's all done, uh, off of the roof of the engineering lab wing, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at UVec How high above the roof is it going to be?
2: Is it, is it like bolted to the shingles or is it on like a, like a truss or something?
3: So we have a truss tower, which is about 15 meters in height. Um, and then. Um, and then it's going to be mounted on a pole that's going to be basically strapped to the side of that. Uh, a horizontal pole or a vertical pole? Okay. A vertical pole up to the uh, up to where the uh, rotor mount is, and then on the rotor mount there's a pole uh, that's vertical uh, that actually goes right through the rotor mount, and the rotor mount is attached to. And then the uh, two antennas are attached on either side of that uh, dielectric pole, uh, which is made out of fiberglass.
2: Do you, do you have to worry about like stability, like vibrational stability with your antenna uh, or is it just something you can accept?
3: Not as much um, because like while we do live in an earthquake zone, um, that is less of a issue uh, when compared with things like ice and snow load. Um, oh, sure. Potential, or at least. Uh, that's more what regulators seem to care about.
2: <laughs> and and uh, I'm sorry, maybe maybe I zoned out, but did you talk about
3: the current state of of the antenna? Is it up? Um, so we're currently uh, in testing phase. Uh, actually, I think so. When I was up there last week, uh, so the antenna is still down on the ground. Um, it's not going to be going up until closer to the end of this month. We're having to work with facilities on that because. Uh, well, they, they are stakeholders and it's uh, this giant antenna that's going to be mounted 15 meters above the roof uh, line. So whether we're, uh, if, like if we need a crane or something, they're going to ha- have to be heavily involved. So uh, right now the antenna is in final preparation for testing, uh, which includes the rotor mount, the actual antennas, most of the cabling and the internal hardware. Uh, we're going to be uh, putting it up on its test mount. I think the plan plan is for Wednesday oh, cool. um, if it is all complete and then we're going to be doing testing on the antenna to make sure that it is working properly and we'll be communicating be able to communicate with a satellite uh, so.
2: Do do you have a, a test satellite that you have permission to talk to? Or are you just going to listen?
3: I I'm not exactly sure what uh, Levy's plan for that is, though. I believe one of the plans is to use the ProtoSat as a uh, for test communications. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also uh, I think we're also planning on seeing if we can. Uh, record telemetry from a couple of amateur radio satellites.
2: I just, I love the image of somebody taking the protosat a couple of blocks down, just like waving it in the air. Like I'm here,
3: I'm here.
4: Just like picking up a Wi-Fi signal with your phone. Right. (laughs) Uh,
2: No, can you hear me now jokes while you're doing that testing? Uh,
3: All of those jokes, actually.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And lots of, did you turn it on jokes? Everyone laughs and then silence. Oh, we didn't actually do that. <laughs> <on>. <laughs>
2: um, Deskin in the chat asks, what's your typical and your longest expected blackout period, uh, given the period and inclination of Orcasat?
4: Great question. Most of So ISS Orbit, like our pass windows, we get them in, in bunches. So our typical kind of like access window is about five minutes when, it, flies over the ground station up to a maximum of like 10 to 12 minutes if it's directly overhead Um, but most of the time we're looking at relatively short passes and between those relatively short passes um, it's just every orbit so we'll have like four or five passes where you can talk to it for five minutes and you get a 90 minute blackout and then you can talk to it again for another five minutes as it comes back around and then eventually the orbit uh, shifts over to the point where it's so low in the horizon that you can't talk to it anymore and then that blackout window is about a day. So then you got to wait about 24 hours and then it comes back around and then you can talk to it again.
1: All right. Well, I have the penultimate question for you, Alex and Bjarke. Where would you like to be found on the internet?
4: You can find uh, Orcasat at orcasat.ca and there's a contact form on there that you can use to reach to us and ask questions and get more information about the project. And We try and be helpful as we can and and answer your questions.
3: And then uh, you can find what we're currently working on at uh, uvsd.ca. It's a little out of date at the moment, but uh, we're working on fixing that. Uh, The
1: blog is really impressive. (laughs) It it not only looks sharp and professional, but the amount of content on there is wonderful and beautiful images. And you really do uh, give a feel of what it's actually like to build the CubeSat and to see it. Yeah, uh, at the real practical level and not such a higher, you know, polished, you know, here's finished hardware. You can actually see the, the nitty gritty in the details. And that's really fun to check out.
2: Yeah. It, it's going to be very difficult for me to go through and pick a handful of photos to include in the show notes. Um, <laughs> and I say that both to the team who's done a very good job producing that content. And I also say it to our listeners who are not going to benefit from all that hard work if they don't go check it out. And our final question is less of a question, uh, and more of a game. It's called Overrated Underrated. Uh, this is a quickfire list of products or concepts. And I would really like you to tell me if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or in the rare instance, correctly values them. Let's start with Alex. Uh, overrated or underrated uh, buying JST connectors off of Amazon? Uh Underrated. Solid. Go for it. It's <laughs> cheap. <laughs> all right Bjarki, overrated or underrated lasers i'd say
3: adequately rated
2: oh all right uh alex overrated or underrated good interior lighting
4: underrated man you gotta have that's how we got good photos everything is good lighting underrated for sure
2: uh okay bjarke overrated or underrated Altium. Say, huh, this I, one, this one might be going to the wrong person, but I'm I'm happy to throw it at you.
4: We're sponsored by Altium. We're sponsored by Altium. Altium's great. It's the best PCB design tool. Uh, it's <laughs> that's, so underrated. That's so what I, that's cool. what I
2: realized as soon, as soon as I saw the Altium badge. This
4: is an actual answer, though. Like Altium, Altium is really good at doing like a lot of things, and like we use Altium for everything on the project. So like they did support us immensely, and it is a good tool. Just it is a fantastic tool. If you're if you're if you're trying to do electronics design, you want to get your own PCBs made. Don't let not having money for Altium hold you back. Oh, like you yeah. can find ways of using free software that does almost just as good of a job as Altium yeah. does.
2: I, I know professionals yeah. who use KiCad for sure. Yeah, Alex, overrated or underrated? Solid rockets that can land.
4: That is sketchy. I'm going to say overrated.
2: Okay, uh, I'm pretty sure Joey B does not listen to the show, but. Uh, <laughs> And uh, finally, Bjarki, overrated or underrated? Lays all dressed.
3: Overrated. One hundred percent. That sounded really it, so. exhausted.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I suspect that as a college student, you probably are overexposed to, to chips in general.
3: Ah, uh, you'd be surprised. Chips are expensive. Oh, <laughs> they weren't, they weren't
2: in my day. Okay, well this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you to both of you for taking so much time out of your day um, and just sharing the the joy of uh, engineering and and student projects and learning and all this. No problem.
4: thank you. I also appreciate all the, the the details like it's not very often I get to talk to people not really involved with the project and actually like dive into like some of the details and and engineering challenges and whatnot so i appreciate that that's that's good
3: yeah and this has been a really awesome time it, it makes
2: it really easy to do these interviews because we're so niche that a lot of people feel that way and so it's easy to get people to geek out and it, i love it it's fantastic right at my alley awesome yeah
0: so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history we have uh four winners um one Correct, but no bonus points, and that is Christian Lowe, and then the bonus point responses come from Uncle willie in Deathkin and the Greek. So they get the bonus points. So I guess we had one person who didn't quite explain the clue, which was Phoenix Rising. Yeah, and I guess Ben you'll you'll explain what it was, or hopefully we'll figure out just by listening to the event.
2: No, it's it's well, a very not, okay. explicit. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 11th of October, 1968. It was the launch of Apollo seven. Now, right off the bat, let me say, uh, the show has gone on long enough, so this is going to be short. However, no matter how much time I devoted to Apollo seven, I could never come close to the space above us. Yeah. The space above us, uh, mm-hmm. podcast, which did such an amazing coverage. I mean, basically everything, every topic that's on that show is so well covered um, mm-hmm. from a standpoint that makes me happy as a space nerd, but is also totally accessible um, to people who aren't quite as fanatical uh, as we are. So go listen to that. Uh, whether or not this scratches your itch, that will scratch it better. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to get right to the clue. Shira wanted to name uh, the command and service module Phoenix in order to honor the Apollo 1 crew. But, uh, NASA had decided, uh, that ever since Gemini 3, which was named Molly Brown, which was a, a politically it's sensitive. I mean, not really sensitive, but like, this is like a little bit of a, it's too much fun. Maybe um, <laughs> uh, NASA says, nope, uh, we're going to, we, if we don't need unique call signs, the call sign is going to be Apollo seven. So that's what they did. Um, but, you know, shear has got a really good instinct going here. And so he actually, before he was turned down, uh, he had uh, some patches drawn up. The actual patch designs, I don't know if there's an archive of all of them, but the one on Wikipedia, uh, as well as on collectspace.com, uh, shows, um, uh, like this lovely, like fiery bird motif. Uh, it's almost like stained glass. It's really pretty. His original concept, he wanted to be able to do, um, Literally, a uh, uh, Saturn 1B rising from ashes, uh, which is a bit macabre. The actual flight patch um, is very boring by comparison. It's probably my least favorite uh, Apollo patch, uh, my favorite being Apollo 8. But uh, the Apollo 7 actual flight patch uh, shows a CSM with its engine uh lit like there's kind of like this flame underneath it um and it's it, it's moving from like left to right and there's like this red orbital arc around the earth and it's just it's very straightforward and and boring i mean it, it's so boring that the earth is center it has the americas centered on it like come on so yeah nasa uh wouldn't even let him do the patch even if it wasn't going to be named phoenix uh just because they they didn't want to remind the public of what had happened during Apollo 1 which is like, fine okay but also remember <laughs> this is the first crude uh flight of the uh, of the Apollo stack so really um really not not what you want to do uh or i guess the first uh crude orbital flight right Did, no they didn't do any crude suborbital flights for apollo no right? no
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't it didn't have a lem and it was a one B, but otherwise, you know. Yeah. It was the first screwed Apollo, yeah.
2: Yeah, although interestingly enough, it, it was originally gonna be uh, a block a uh, CSM block one, uh, which is what uh burned on Apollo one. And so it was upgraded to a block two, and I believe it had the docking port and everything because that was part of the, the block two package. And, you know, Shira really wanted a Lem to go along with it, but um he got the docking port no in OLM. Now, with all that said, there is a, with all the, the patch nonsense, um, they did a, uh, 45th anniversary commemorative patch, like a redesign. And it's, it's really good. It looks super modern. Um, and it feels a little out of place if you're thinking about it in terms of Apollo, but even, even if it looks a little out of place, you know, it was issued in, uh, uh, 45, <laughs> 45 years worth of graphic design later. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it does really look fantastic. So it's got, um, the Saturn rocket, uh, coming up. Uh, it's also got its engines lit. There, there's a CSM in the background that doesn't, but the, the, uh, Saturn does have its engines lit and you can just barely see, um, like the ignition cloud, like when it's really close to the ground, you get that big fireball. Um, you can just barely see that fireball peeking out from behind, uh, what looks to be a Pokemon. Uh, it's a Phoenix, but it's much less stylized than the, uh, the earlier art, uh, that, that never was. It's a good patch. I mean, it's, it's better than the actual Apollo 7 patch. I don't think it's as good as, uh, Shira's, uh, concept art though.
1: I think it's pretty sweet. Yeah.
2: It, it's, it's definitely a Pokemon, but you know, <laughs> so the, uh, the Twisif event is the launch. And normally like I talk a lot about the mission itself, uh, but this launch actually is well worth talking about. The launch happened during. Uh, a launch safety rule violation uh the wind speeds were too high, and they were so high that if they had to abort early in the launch, the command module might have been blown back onto land instead of landing out in the water now there's um conflicting reports about what happened. NASA says that uh Shera was Maybe a little reckless, but Shira wanted to do the launch and NASA managers told him, no, you should call it off. And he said, nope, we're doing it. And they did it. Um, however, Shira, after some time, I'm not sure how long, but after some time, he says, no, actually he was the one who wanted to abort. Uh, but the mission managers waived the wind rule and kind of pressured him a little bit to, to go. And he just kind of. Went along with their judgment, or was pressured, or you know, who knows? No kidding. Um, yeah,
1: that's the exact. Because I had I had no idea about this mission, but he was the one who made the call on the Gemini where they would have had to otherwise fire the ejection seats because there was some issue on the pad, like the
4: the
1: engine shut down or something, or yeah, I think I think the engines never actually lit, and so they were supposed to basically leave because they, yeah, they, they fired for one and a half seconds and then shut down. And then he was just like, Nope, we're not pulling the D ring. <laughs> yeah, Cause he didn't feel any movement.
2: And also like, it's, it's more risky, right? wasn't, wasn't Gemini like, yeah. uh, oxygen later on there. Like, you know what, actually? Yeah, exactly. So, um, and you know, uh, this, this really was sort of the, the end of, of Shira's career. Like he, this was his last space flight he kind of was on the outs with NASA boy. The sixties were such a dramatic time in space, right? Th- this would never happen today. <laughs> like today mm-hmm. it, it's like things are, are boring almost. And it's very unusual for anything weird to happen, much less like personnel, uh, issues or disagreements or whatever. Uh, so, uh, the launch, uh, despite all this, the launch was successful. They said it was a smooth ride, uh, think it was actually that smooth of a ride. Although I believe that uh, the Saturn 1B was a nicer ride to space than the Saturn 5. But once they got on orbit, one of the big things that they were going to do was rendezvous um, with the uh, S4B upper stage. Um, So after they separated from it, they did some like proximity operations, kind of like, uh, holding station with it. But then they let it uh, drift away. And the intention was to come back, uh, you know, let it drift for a day and then and then re-rendezvous with it. But uh, Shira refused to do the rendezvous. He said that he was getting a cold. He said that the crew hadn't eaten. And he also really didn't like the fact that the schedule was getting packed with all these different activities that uh, weren't originally on the schedule. Now, adding... Uh, activities to a schedule is nothing, uh, uncommon, like this happens. Um, but remember that this was before we really understood how harmful that kind of thing is to a crew's mental health. Um, these days we are, we really have learned our lessons and we were still in the middle of learning them back then. But even with that said, uh, the mission length, for apollo 7 was not set in stone the mission was structured uh, more on a day by day basis they had uh, certain landmarks or tests that they uh, had planned and when that particular test went well they could get the mission extended another day um so it's kind of a weird way to think about it but if you uh, flip it around and basically say you know we're going to come home as soon as one of these tests fails that, that might be a little easier but uh, even though he uh, decided to, to push the rendezvous back, they uh, they did successfully do the rendezvous, and this is really cool. Um, I I did not realize this. They did uh, the bulk, if not all, of the rendezvous burns with the SPS engine, the like the engine that gets them to the moon, right? The big bell on mm. the bottom of the. The CSM. As a Kerbal player, my instinct is to say, "Oh well, you, you've only been drifting for a day. Just use uh, uh, ACS and uh, and do the little tiny rocket burns." But no, they you know they had this big engine that uh, had not yet been uh, relit on orbit, um, so it was a good test of that and their ability to do the rendezvous. The rendezvous was calculated on the ground, but of course they didn't have like razor edge, accurate uh, readings of the position of either of these two vehicles. Uh, and you know, it's, is being typed into a computer and then read up by uh, a person. And so there, there's a lot of inaccuracy here. So they calculated what the rendezvous burn would take, but the, the last little bit of it was actually like dialed in by hand. Uh, you know, they're, they're flying the, the, a rocket with a joystick and uh got themselves nice and close and and you know snuggled up next to their target and proved yes we we can do uh this sort of rendezvous and we can do it with this vehicle if that wasn't bad enough they did the the um the rendezvous without radar um, it was not installed on this vehicle and when they needed a rendezvous in lunar orbit they they would have it uh, but for this, they were just going off of, uh, ground readings. I'm, I'm assuming a uh, couple of quick firsts, uh, this mission featured the first hot meal prepared on board an American spacecraft and, uh, also some instant coffee, which the nutritionist said, uh, <laughs> was not a good idea. Um, and I, was it Cunningham that had the coffee? I think it was like, yeah, no, I, I need my coffee. Um, Mm -hmm. this mission also featured the first live television broadcast from an American spacecraft and uh, Apollo seven is often overlooked. I mean, I guess everything before Apollo 11 is often overlooked, but, uh, Apollo eight really, uh, I guess was in a position to steal the thunder of Apollo seven. Not only was it going to the moon, uh, but it happened only two months after Apollo seven took place. Uh, this was, in in the really crazy heyday of Apollo when we had launch cadences that we aspire to now you know but yeah there you go that's this week in Spaceflight flight history
1: well thank you ben uh especially since uh, this one focused on one of my favorite astronauts cuz uh, Shirah, he um he's oh, from New know, Jersey right? and when i was a little kid uh, I mean, too young to remember my dad got a book from him that was autographed, and so I have his book signed. Oh, I didn't and know that. so I have to be a fan of his. Oh, even cool. if, by accounts, he seems like he could have been a little <laughs> tough to work with or <laughs> a little stubborn about things.
2: Yeah, but, like, I, I, in my opinion, his stubbornness was very often, maybe more often than not, it was well-placed, mm-hmm. um, and, like, because I don't have to work with him, uh, I'm free to, uh, put him on the 1960s astronaut pedestal, uh, <laughs> where, you know, they're going to do something that's very dangerous. And so they slam back the rest of their whiskey sour and get in their Corvette and drive out to launch pad. <laughs> like, you know, he kind of, he kind of embodies that, that ideal, uh, whether or not that ideal was appropriate then or appropriate now. Um, I got a lot of problems, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't not, get me wrong. Uh, right.
1: I think it was. Yeah. yeah, I think it was awesome. He basically, if I remember correctly, because this this was the one I, that was like a mini uh, revolt on on reentry yeah. because he, he was like, they're like, put on your helmet. He's like, I feel like crap. <laughs> I don't want to put on the helmet. We're not going to do yeah. that. And he just stuck to it, and that was that. And so yeah, but yeah, uh, the only uh, only person to ever fly Mercury. Uh, Gemini and Apollo. Phenomenal twist. And, uh, oh, thank you very much. Uh, like you said, that one's overlooked, but it shouldn't be. And so I'm glad you covered it. Now, David, next week is the 18th to the 24th of October. Do you have a clue for us?
0: I do. All right. So next week in 2008, the clue is let's start with a weather satellite.
1: Okay. Well, if you think you know what that event is referring to, uh, shoot us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
0: Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just four events this week, so not as many as last week. So uh, let's begin. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And Dennis, what's first?
1: First up, we have a mission you heard from Ben last week. Uh, evidently, it's been delayed a little bit, but this is uh, JAXA's Epsilon launch vehicle that'll be taking the RAISE-3 payload to sun-synchronous orbit. And so this is a collection of demos on board and... Uh, yeah, it'll be launching on October 12th with a window from 50 UTC to 055-11 UTC. Uh, five minutes, almost. And so it'll be launching out of Uchinoura uh, Space Center in Japan uh, at the Mu Center, specifically. I guess that's a callback to one of their earlier vehicles.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, maybe it's a, a reference in common. After that, we have a Proton-M. Uh, this is uh, Block dmo 3 uh, flying Angosat two, uh, which is, um, a communication satellite, uh, operated by the Angolan government, I believe. And this is replacing Angosat one, which failed two or three days into its, its life. That was yeah, 20, 2017. And it, it failed three days into its mission, uh, which really sucks. So this, this is the replacement a few years later. Uh, it's going up to a geostationary orbit, as you might expect. So that's going to be launching on Wednesday, October 12th at 1505 hours UTC out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome.
0: And then after that, on October 14th, we have the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching Hotbird 13F, and that is a geostationary communication satellite that is built by Airbus Defense in Space for, how do you say that? And I'm going to say it wrong. Is it UTELSAT?
1: Oh, yeah, UTELSAT.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, what is it? I thought I usually said it wrong.
1: I and, usually okay, say EU-TELSAT, I think. Or, yeah, EU. Oh, okay. It's European Union. <sighs> yeah, but I think it's Which Utah. Which looks like it could go that way.
0: I feel like every time I say that, I'm always corrected. And I was like, well, what's coming to mind is UtelSat, but so that can't be right, but okay. Okay. <laughs> uh. The launch window for that is um, from 0325 UTC to 0524 UTC, so about two hours, and that is launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. So check out that launch if you'd like.
1: And then finally, we've got a uh, we've got a flyby. Uh, we're getting a visitor, a spacecraft, Lucy, that we had sent. Uh, we launched, however, many years ago. Um, or when was that? Yeah, last year.
2: I was, I was gonna gonna say, say, it was one
1: year ago. And in I fact, that's
2: probably not a coincidence
1: that, uh, it was launched about one year ago and it's coming back mm-hmm. to earth one year mm-hmm. later. Hey. Wink, wink. And so indeed this is on the 16th of October and the Lucy spacecraft will come cruising by 300 kilometers to earth, um, to get wow. gravity assist for its way out. I had to make sure I got that number Holy correct because of how low that was. Um, and so, yeah, pretty wild, uh. It's three carmen lines so it's not like it's gonna suddenly catch fire <laughs> but yeah yeah and uh so uh yeah it's got another flyby it'll come visit us in december of 2024 and then start making the first of many visits on this super circuitous wild uh, orbit mm-hmm. that takes it by uh the two different uh l4 and l5 uh, lagrange points for the uh, sun jupiter system uh visiting basically all these great asteroids and uh Trojans and the Greeks in
2: particular. Just love it. The (laughs) close rendezvous only makes it better. All right. Those are your upcoming Spaceflight events. And with that, let's do it with the show,
0: and
1: we would like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Azukar, Colin, Deathkin, Mike, Stanley for you, Leon Running Man, The Greek, Chevy, Chris A.K. Steigarfield, Calvin Stew, Moritz, Delta V, Fonji Ricola and Biarki for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If
2: you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com
0: And that's it, so we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye everybody See you!